I don't know if you guys have met Dave Powers before in the blue there, Kurt Person, or uh, Devin Beecham, a few of our other elders here at Real Life that we love a ton. These guys serve so faithfully around here and uh, are so, so thankful that we have such an awesome team. And God has grown his team. God is bringing Seth and Ashley to be part of something awesome here. And uh, I believe God's bringing you here today as well to be a part of what he is doing. We're on a mission together to reach this world for Jesus one person at a time. And uh, I am so, so excited for what God's going to do in this this time together today. My name is Richie. I'm our lead pastor, and I'm really, really thankful that we have these minutes together. And uh, I, I believe with all my heart that God has you here for a reason. You know um, it's like Hoop Fest and Iron Man, and um, some of you already finished Iron Man, I know, and you're, you're here in the room all sweaty. But, you know, it, uh, normally these weekends, you don't have full rooms, but here we are in a full room with lots of people excited to not just go through religious motions and check religious boxes, but actually be equipped for the work of God, the mission of God, the the, the purpose that God has for us to reach this entire world for him one person at a time. Whether you know Jesus or not, I believe God knows you and he has drawn you to himself and he has a reason for each of us to be here today. And so uh, if you would, would you grab your Bible and open to John chapter 8 today uh, is where we're going to be kicking off from. Uh, all last service, I called it Mark chapter 8 and um, was leading people massively astray. And so I'm going to get it right. John chapter 8 is where we are uh, today, and I am so excited uh, for this conversation. I wanted to um, just update you real briefly. Um, many of you know that my wife uh, has been battling lymphoma for the last several months, and uh, the cancer was first a big giant tumor in her chest and all kinds of craziness associated with those first few weeks in the hospital and all of that. And uh, she just finished her fifth round of chemo on Friday, and, and that stuff kind of knocks you out completely. But um, uh, we got, a, we got a, a, a scan back this week, and it was um, completely clear of cancer. And um, yeah, and we, are, we are so thankful to God for his... Um, his grace and his strength. I pray every day for my wife, and I know many of you uh, do as well. And um, his provision during this time has, has been so powerful. And many of you have been a part of that, whether it's been praying or financially helping or however you've been a part of supporting meals and all kinds of stuff. We just want to say thank you. And, and um, there's still lots of steps. She's got another round of chemo to go. There's all kinds of other things coming down. But I, I just wanted to share that with you because I think God is really answering prayer right now. And um, we, we thank him and we glorify him for his work in my wife's body. And so, um, yeah, thank you. Thanks for your life for being a, being a family together, being a church together in this time. I'm excited for this conversation today, and uh, I'm going to try to shift gears here before I completely lose it, okay? <laughs> so go with me, please. Um, this conversation is really one that we started months ago as we were trying to understand what does it look like for us um, to experience the fullness of who God has made us to be. See, when you come into faith in Jesus Christ, you come in with all of our brokenness and baggage and all the pain and all the sin that's associated with our life before Jesus. That's the good news about Jesus as he receives you just as you are. But then as you, you, your spirit is reborn, uh, you're, you're born again, you're like this new spiritual baby, you're like an infant spiritually, um, far from 
mature or fully grown in the faith. You're, you're on a journey of transformation, becoming who God made you to be. You, you go from infancy into childhood, into young adulthood, eventually into spiritual parenthood where you're learning to actually multiply disciples and, and as a disciple of Jesus yourself. And it's this amazing journey of transformation, but it's, it's really practical too. <laughs> your, your story is one of walking away from the old habits and attitudes and lifestyles and decisions that you used to make, the, the way you used to talk, the way you used to think, and you're, you're being made new over and over, day after day. God's empowering you. He's speaking to you. He's leading you. And then you, you have your responsibility, your part of obeying and, and, and submitting to his authority and his leadership and being empowered by his spirit and actually making the decisions to obey what he's calling you to do. And this, this is an amazing partnership, and we call it transformation. Jesus said, I'm making all things new. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians that, that uh, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. And this is that story, that transformation. So you start to look at your relationship with Jesus. This impacts that. And what does maturity look like in your relationship with God himself? What does maturity look like for you in relationship here within the church? In fact, if you were to track the book of Ephesians, we're not going to do it today, you would see Paul write, first and foremost, to your relationship with Jesus. Then you would see him focus on your relationships within the church. And then you would see him focus on relationships within the home and the family. That's where we just were the last several weeks, parenting, marriage, sexuality, all these conversations about maturity within your home. Today, we're going to step into a new sphere of relationship. It's, it's what Paul would call the world around you. It's not family. It's not church. It's maybe friends, coworkers, people around your neighborhood uh, that God has given you relationship with beyond those other kind of few circles of relationship. And so as we dive into this today, I believe that God has a picture of maturity for you in your interactions with the world around you. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but as you are changed by Jesus, you are being transformed, you're, you're set free to now become who he made you to be. He actually expects and wants and longs for you to become mature in how you interact with the world around you. Maybe you go to school. It's your classmates. It's your roommates. It's, it's the people that your kids play sports with. Whatever that, that circle of, uh, of people is that you would kind of deem the world, God has a lot of hope that we would mature in our interactions there. I would say, man, as the, uh, <laughs> it feels like, I don't know, this is like, maybe I'm getting old right now, but the acceleration of, of the world falling apart around us seems to have just like, you know, hit like pedal to the metal the last few years. There, there's this overreaching for many of us, uh, our sensitivity to the brokenness around us, all the politics that have emerged much more forcefully, the aggressiveness of language and how people are treating each other has, has just kind of seemed to exponentially increase over these last um, 36 to 48 months. It seems like there's this angst in us when it comes to interacting with the world around us. And I want to speak to that today. I want us to grow and mature in how we interact with the world around us. We have these tools of social media and interacting online. We have texting. We have lots of digital communication beyond just face-to-face -face communication that just kind of serves to complicate this conversation quite a bit, wouldn't you say? Wouldn't you say? Yes. You're like, I don't want to talk about it, Richie. <laughs> okay. We are going to anyway. Uh, 
this tension, I think, is real because the picture that Jesus gives us of his church, his people, is like a city on a hill, like this bright, shining light that people look at and aspire to and long for, or a lamp in a dark room that's not meant to be hidden under a bowl, but actually set up so, so that it brings light to the entire room. This is the image that Jesus paints of what his church, his people are to be like, light in the darkness. And oftentimes because of some of the angst or some of the pain or some of the difficulties that we're experiencing, many of us have found ourselves interacting with the world not in a light-filled way, but maybe in kind of a dark type of way. Maybe hoping and praying and thinking that we're interacting with the world for the, for the purpose of God, but we're kind of fighting for the things of God, much like the devil would, would call us to fight for. Instead of fighting God's way, we're, we're fighting the devil's way, and maybe we're doing it in the name of God, and, and it's kind of creating a lot of tension and complication in relationships around us. And Man, I think many of us do have a heart and a passion to change the world, to see the world experience the love, the grace, the freedom that comes from Jesus, the mercy that comes from Jesus, freedom from brokenness and pain. Like, I love this heart about us as a people. We want to see the world a better way. We want to see it Jesus' way. And I think that heart needs to continue to grow in us, and, and, and we want to foster that and continue to see that grow around here. That's a part of what it looks like to be mature in our interactions with the world. But, but I think the, the caution in this conversation today is that we don't want to fight for the things of God like the devil would ask us to fight. We want to learn to fight, and we want to learn to love. We want to learn to interact with the world in a mature way, in a godly way in the way that Jesus would model, Jesus would be proud of, that Jesus would be like, yeah, those are my people. Those are the people that, that, that I have died for and given my life for. Those are my church. And, and I think that you aspire to that in your heart as well. And so I want to unpack what does that look like for us today. I start, before we jump into John 8, I, I would go back to John chapter 1 uh, because Jesus for us as a church is always the model. When we're looking at scripture, scripture is authoritative for us as a church. We believe that this is God's word to us, that we shape our life and our decisions and how we interact with, with people, marriage, everything right here from God's word. God's word is the authority for our lives as disciples of Jesus. And Jesus himself becomes the perfect picture, the image, the visible image of the invisible God, the one that we look to as the model for all of life and, and what it looks like. And so when I come to this conversation, I just instantly, our team, when we were building this sermon a few weeks ago, was like, what did Jesus do? Like, how did Jesus interact with the world around him? I mean, he came in the first century, which you might romanticize as you look through the book of Acts, but it was busted. It was broken. It was politicized. I mean, I mean, the Jewish people were being occupied by, by the most powerful rulers in the world, this Roman force, and it was not a peaceful um, occupation. It was very painful, destructive, very political, very broken. It's, it's not like pretend like those were the good old days. And when, when I look at Jesus entering into humanity, this is the time of history that he came into. John captures who Jesus is. John 1 verse 14 says, the word became flesh. This is Jesus, capital W, word, became flesh. Jesus, God himself, came and put on flesh. And he dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as 
of the only son from the father. And I love this phrase. He was full of grace and truth. When you think about your interaction with the world around you, uh, there's a temptation to maybe not be completely full of grace and truth the way Jesus was full of grace and truth. You might be tempting to be either grace or truth to be a little more gracious or a little more truthful. And I would be gracious, but they need to know the truth, Richie. I, I, I would be truthful, but, but I, I've had so many enemies and I can't say difficult things, so I'm just going to be really gracious, depending on maybe your personality and what kind of conflict you like or hate or however, you know, like some of your interactions, you're just going to like it. You're just going to move on. You're just going to keep the peace. Like you're one of those grace persons, or maybe you're a truth person and you're just like, I'm going to look for a fight everywhere I can fight. And I'm going to convince people of the truth around me. They got to know the truth, right? If you know the truth, the truth will set you free. You're like quoting scripture like this. There's like this angst inside you. And Jesus had this ability to be both, not partially grace, partially truth, full of grace and truth. How did he do that? What does that look like for us? This is John 8. Look at verse 2 with me of, of John chapter 8. At dawn, Jesus appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law, these are the religious leaders, and the Pharisees, they brought in a woman who was caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group. Think of the shame of this. They made her stand in front of the group, and they said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. And in the law, he's speaking of the Old Testament, the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. This is a practice of putting them to death with giant rocks that they would heap on them until they died. That's what the law commands us to do is to stone such women. Now, what do you say, Jesus? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and he said to them, let any of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and he wrote on the ground. And at this, those who heard uh, began to go away one at a time. The older ones first. Until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Here's a picture. Here's an interaction. Here's a snapshot John gives us into the life and ministry of Jesus. This one who is full of grace and truth. Think about this picture here. How much shame this woman must have felt being stood up in front, kind of paraded in front of all these religious people as a, as a trap to trap this new teacher on the scene named Jesus that the Pharisees were trying to figure out what to do with and who he was and where he was really coming from. Think about the guilt that she must have felt being caught in the act of adultery. You think of all the, the, the just the, kind of the hatred that must have been felt in this room. And Jesus in this moment has this amazing ability. To, I don't know what he was writing on the ground. I don't know why he did that. 
Uh, but he had this amazing ability to begin to diffuse the the angst in the room. He, he, he began to just suck the kind of the, the hatred and all of the, the, the poison out of this interaction. And then he brings it to this place of immense grace. And he says, all right, I want you to start this practice, this exercise with, with the ones that have committed no sins ever. Forcing these religious leaders to evaluate their own hearts and where they've been and what they've done and what they've said and what they've thought. and Knowing humanity like Jesus knew humanity, every single one of us have sinned and every single one of us have fallen short of God's standard of, of righteousness, which is perfection. And so I, I'm sure there's a level here of just awareness that is needed for these guys to really evaluate their own hearts of like, oh yeah, who am I really to bring condemnation to this lady? It's easy, isn't it, to make one sin a little bit bigger deal than other sins? It's easy to elevate it and go, well, it's adultery, Jesus. When you've got envy in your heart or you've got lust in your heart, you've got all these other sins that maybe seem more private or more secret, it's easy to elevate these ones and make them like the spectacle, like we've got to get them out of our country, we've got to get them out of our culture, we've got to eradicate all this sin, right? Like get all righteous in our indignation and... Jesus is like, all right, let's start with the one that's never sinned. You go ahead and throw the first stone. The grace that Jesus brings when he says, if no one's here to condemn you, neither do I condemn you. Did Jesus have the right to condemn this woman? He did. But this is the good news of Jesus Christ is that even though we deserve death and condemnation, he decides to give us a gift, a free gift, not one that we've earned or deserved, but it's by his love and on his merit, not our merit alone, that he decides to love us right where we are in the midst of our sin, that, that he would choose to die for us while we were still sinners. Like this reality is just right in front of us in this story where Jesus is like, all right, well then I'm not gonna condemn you either, but I want you to go and leave this life of sin. Love the perfect picture of grace and truth. Adultery is sin, leave it, knock it off, quit living that way. He's not mixing words here. He's not shrinking back from the truth to be really gracious to this woman. He's not shrinking away from grace to be extra truthful with this woman. He's carrying both of them really fully into this interaction. This is the picture that I believe God gives us. There's many more in Scripture, but here's one that I just want to look at today and go, how do we be a people of grace and truth? How do we interact with a lost and broken and dying world in a way that, that is actually mature? that is godly, that is Jesus-like, that is, that is uh, one that is measured against the picture that we see in Scripture. Because it's easy to measure ourselves against other people and be like, well, there's a lot more mean people out there, Richie, than this guy. There's a lot more, like, you know, whatever, people out there than me. And, and I'm not asking us to compare ourselves that way. What I want us to do is I want us to look at our teacher, our authority, our leader. His name is Jesus. He is the one that we choose to emulate and, and, and model our lives after. And he has this amazing picture of grace and truth. So how do we become mature in our interactions with the world around us? That's what I want to ask today. Paint a picture here. I want to ask you to consider, what does your maturity look like in your interaction with the world? Are you maturing? Are you growing? Are you getting better at it? And just keep, you know, I don't need a, a verbal answer here. I want, these are reflective questions for you. So you just kind of consider, maybe you've never considered this. 
You've just done it the way you do it. And, and I think it's important for us to kind of recognize that maybe I've never tried to mature in my interactions with people around me at work or at school or wherever I am. In all those interactions, maybe I've never really considered maturing in those interactions. I hope you do. When I look at Jesus here in this model, if we're going to start this process of maturity, I think it needs to start at the very core of what drives us, our motivations. That Jesus always had a very pure motivation. And so if you and I are going to mature, we got to start to purify our motivations. Like why you interact with the people around you is critical to this conversation. Is it to convince people that they're wrong? Is it to get them to stop doing something? Is it to uphold the value that you have? Is it, is it to make sure that they know what you believe or what you think or what you think is right or wrong? Like, why is it? What drives your interactions with the world around you? Maybe you're, maybe you're, you got fear in your heart about the way the world is or the way it's going or the way interactions are happening. And so maybe you're compelled by fear in these interactions. Maybe it's insecurity in your own life that's driving you. Maybe I feel like I'm not doing a good job as a parent, and so I'm going to yell at all the people out there that might potentially mess up my kids. What is it that's driving your interaction with the world around you? It's important that you pay attention to your motivation because your motivation will drastically impact the approach that you bring to the, to the people around you, why you do what you do. Jesus was motivated purely 100% by love. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, John 3, 16, that whoever believes in him would not perish, would not die, but would actually have eternal life, would live eternally with God. John 3, 17, Jesus said, the Father, God did not send the son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. You're hearing the motivation of Jesus in John chapter 3. This is why I'm here. Luke 19, the son of man came to seek and save the lost. Jesus is on a rescue mission here on planet Earth, giving his life as a ransom for everybody that has been enslaved to sin, walking sinless and perfect so that he can become a substitution for every single one of us who are stuck in our sinful, unrighteous ways, willingly giving his life as a ransom for us. Like, think of this love, that he would lay down his life for us, that he would die in our place. He would resurrect from the dead and, and that he would declare victory over sin and death for any one of us that would put our faith in him. I imagine Jesus on a, on, on a boat, just like paddling through a sea of drowning people saying, hey, I got, I got life. I got a boat. Get in. It's a rescue mission that Jesus came on. He came with this hope and this heart to rescue as many drowning people out of sin and shame and guilt and condemnation that he could possibly rescue. Those that would respond, those that would listen, those that would have that responsiveness in their heart to go, yeah, I am a sinner. I need to be rescued by God's love and his grace. Thank you for the gift of life. They would reach up and take the hand. See, what I love about Jesus, he's like, man, it's actually, he says to his disciples, it's better for me that I, that, that it's better for you that I go. Because when I go, then I'm going to send you my, my spirit, my comforter, my helper, my advocate. And, and he's going to dwell in you. He's going to empower you. I love the plan of God. Now, Jesus, one guy here on earth pulling as many drowning people out of the sea as he possibly could is a pretty powerful thing. 
But then when you think about all those that have now been rescued out of the ocean or given the same opportunity out of their drowning brokenness to begin to pluck friends and family and coworkers out of the same swirling seas of doubt and condemnation and shame, like what a gift that God would include us on this same rescue mission. Why are we interacting with the world around us? Do we see the, the, the lostness as a problem to be dealt with or, or with a sense of compassion and urgency? The brokenness around us should, I, I feel like, compel us to love more, to serve more, to go more, to give more, to do more than we are doing right now to see more people experience rescue out of the drowning in their sin. God, forgive us for getting so angry with the brokenness of sinners around us when sinners are acting like sinners should, sinful. Forgive us, God, for being so angry at sinners, for being sinners. People that are outside of a relationship with God are enslaved to their sin. You in the room, if you're outside of a relationship with God, you are dominated by sinful desires. That is the only mode that you know. And for you and I that have been set free from our sinful nature, now we have the right and the ability to grow in a relationship with God and the ability to be free from sin and be transformed to become more like Jesus. That same transformation has to impact the way we view the world around us. It has to fill us with a sense of compassion, urgency, love for those that are around us. Not to see them as a problem, not to see them as as some kind of with some moral superiority complex. You know, pride has never been a part of Jesus' people's story because we all recognize where we've come from. It creeps in. Oh, it creeps into our hearts. Pride keeps us on our toes, ready to fight the next fight and ready to prove somebody wrong. But, but when you and I recognize that the grace of God that's been poured out on our lives is a gift. It is 100% a gift from God. It had zero to do with you and I. The good news of Jesus Christ is that Christ died for sinners, of which I am the worst. For you to recognize that, 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 that sense of desperation, I need a Savior is the foundation for how we interact with people around us. That is, the, that is the motivation inside of us of, well, if there's other sinners in this world, they gotta know the good news too. They gotta know the, 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 the grace of God, the gift of God too. Like uh, how many people can we get out of this drowning ocean? Like how many people can we fit in this boat with us? We need more and more room, more and more people, more and more love, more and more motives that are pure, filled with a sense of urgency and compassion. God, forgive us, right? For allowing our hearts to get hardened to the world around us. I know it's been difficult. I know that there's been things said. I know that you feel beat up. Maybe you feel like, like everything's just falling apart around you. It's not, it's not the America it used to be. I, I know that there's all those sentiments, and I'm not ignoring those. I'm just not putting my hope in the world being different and better as some sort of like government level or some sort of uh, change that's going to happen in policy or, or, or whatever. The hope of the kingdom has always been from really the grassroots, from the ground up. Jesus changed the entire world with 12 guys that had no idea what they were doing. 
He didn't put a new ruler in place. He didn't get a new Caesar and be like, yeah, that guy's a joke. Let's get a new one. He didn't. And it's so tempting for us to think that way, to think like, in, like, like from the top down. Oh, we're going to change this world. We got to get that top figured out and, and then all the rest of this. No, no, no. The kingdom has always changed one person at a time. When you and I recognize the grace of God in our lives, we can't help but share it with people around us. And that person that's near us at work or in our neighborhood that's seeing the life that's being changed in us and the way that we're, 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 we're being purified and the way we treat our spouse is different and the way we love our kids is different and the way we're not given to drunkenness anymore, the way we're not, we're not compelled with lust anymore, the way that we're, we're now being made new, they're like, I want that. And I, I believe with all my heart that this is the, the passion of God is that we would be motivated the same way Jesus was motivated with this love and this compassion to rescue people from hell, to rescue people from the drowning of sin and shame and condemnation that is just killing them. Purify our motive, God. Help us to have the same heart that you have, God. That's where, that's where this interaction and maturity in these interactions really begin is at the core of who we are, why we do what we do. The second thing that I think is so important, Jesus is doing it in John chapter 8, is that you and I would learn to build influence. The kingdom of God I mentioned in a moment ago, it's, it's person to person, it's human to human, it's relationship by relationship, it's, it's one heart to another heart. And influence is the essence of relationship. If people know us, love us, trust us, they will believe what we have to say. If they see the change in us, they're going to want the same change in them. So influence has so many facets to it. It's, it's about us being changed, that we are continually, perpetually maturing and growing and being radically transformed by our, our God in heaven. And as people see that change, they want it. It's us learning how to be in relationship with other people, how to forgive, how to overlook offenses, how to not be offended all the time, how to, how, to, how to really connect with people in a real way, how to ask good questions. Like whoever has the most influence is going to win this world. And if you and I are shrinking back from people, alienating ourselves from people, being mean towards people, we're, we're, we're being angry or angsty towards people. We are hurting influence. We are killing our influence. People are going, I don't want any of that. I got enough hate in my life. I got enough brokenness in my life. I don't, I don't want any of that shame and guilt and condemnation. These religious leaders, they parade this woman in front of Jesus and in front of the, the whole council that's there. And I just, I can't imagine the amount of shame she must have felt in that moment. And for Jesus to draw their attention off of her onto whatever he was writing on the ground, what a, what a moment of influence. How grateful she must have been just to be like, oh, they're not all staring at me with all that hate. The way he's connecting with her in this moment of saying, is there anybody left? No, I'm not gonna condemn you either. I want you to go and sin no more. The influence, the relationship that he built just in those few small, short interactions gave him the capacity to call her to a new life, a life of healing, a life of transformation, a life of freedom in him. The way that this world is going to be one is by our relationships with people around us, through the influence that we build in people's lives, at work, neighborhoods, sports teams. Uh, I had to apologize to a referee one time. 
because I was hurting my influence. The kingdom has always advanced like one person, one, one human heart to another at a time. And I feel like when we're all angsty towards the world, brokenness around us, it's easy to get upside down on this whole thing and think that we've got a platform when we really don't. That people actually want to listen to us when they really don't. And we're just shooting ourselves in the foot, making it harder to hear us because of the way that we're interacting with the world around us. Wanting to bring light, but we're actually giving Jesus a black eye. We carry his name, but we don't look anything like him. We're certainly not motivated with the same love that he is motivated with and the compassion that he's driven by. My, my hope in this conversation is that we'd have the willingness to self-reflect and go, wow, am I, am I a person of influence? Am I building influence in people's lives, my employees' lives, those that, that I work with? Like, God, would you grant me favor in their lives, an opportunity, God, to be able to share the hope that I have in you? recognize like these neighbors are here I'm I'm in this neighborhood for a reason God put me here this school like as maybe as frustrating as some things might God you put my kids there for a reason you you put my, my family in this spot in this city this slice of history has been given and entrusted to us not to just be scornful and angry about it but to actually do something with this opportunity that God has given Oh, I remember being so angry at the church when I was like 25. All kinds of my mentors just disappointed me. And the church that I was a part of blew up and split into a couple of different factions. And it was just so disappointing because I, I was called to ministry. I was going to be a pastor. And this was not ministry, I decided in my heart. This is a mess. And instead of being humble and learning through that experience, I just got bitter. And it took trusted mentor to really stick his finger in my chest and go, Richie, you're not going to ever change nothing about the church standing on the outside, poking holes at it. Nobody's ever changed nothing standing on the outside. But if you would get in and actually love the church and lead the church to a better place, then you can actually see the change happen that you want to see. I don't say the same thing to us about the world around us and the relationships that God has given us. God has put you where he's put you so that you can lead and love and bring the heart and the compassion, the mercy of God in the way that Jesus would bring it to those that are all around you. You're not going to change it just yelling at it. You're going to change it by loving, by serving, by getting in the middle of those messes that people are in. Maybe you're getting pretty wet as you're reaching in. Maybe you have to jump in a few times and pull people out of the wreckage of their lives. But I believe that this is who Jesus calls us to be. This is what it looks like to be mature in our interactions with the world. John 13, Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you, that you would love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. He says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples <laughs> if you have love for one another. The world wants something different, powerful, life-changing. 
The world does not want more hate, more brokenness, more sin, more destruction. The world wants hope. And if Jesus' people aren't willing to bring the love, grace, and the mercy, the compassion of God, giving the hope that we have to those around us, no one will. We are God's plan. This is his rescue boat. You are his disciples called to reach in and grab those drowning in the water. There is no other plan. There is no other organization. It is Jesus' church and his church alone that he is commissioned to go make disciples of all nations. And God brought you here to be a part of that rescue mission. our reputation the compassion that fills our hearts it's the mercy of God just pouring out of our lives it's the grace and the truth alive in our interactions with people are we being Jesus church are you maturing in your interactions with the world around you that's my prayer for us as a church it's my prayer for you individually for us collectively. So I want to pray for you today. Some of you don't have a relationship with God. You're still drowning in your sin. We're here today to offer you the life that is found only in Jesus. It's simple. It's a prayer of repentance. God, I am a sinner and I need salvation. It's not easy, but it's simple. I am a sinner and I need salvation. If you're at that spot, we want to call you to that place today to pray that simple, wholehearted prayer to take your first step of obedience, which is to be baptized. We've got shirts and shorts and towels, everything you need to take that step today. Experience freedom from your sinful nature. Become who God made you to be. Others of you, your motives have been off and you need to repent. You've been trying to fix the brokenness in all the wrong ways. God's calling you to repent, to not dress it up, just laugh it off, but to repent of giving our Savior a black eye. Others of us, we just are desperate for God to fill us with his love and his compassion, that we would love the way he loves, that we would really have his heart as we interact with people around us. However you're being hit by this message today, I want to pray for you. Would you stand to your feet with me today? We're alive. God, there's so much that you're doing in this room right now. We just acknowledge your presence, your power, your grace, God.
acknowledge, God, that we are sinners and we need salvation. We are so thankful, God, for your salvation here in this room today to rescue us out of our sin and our shame and our condemnation. God, thank you for your grace, this gift of your son's sacrifice on the cross on our behalf. Thank you, God. We don't deserve it. We haven't earned it, God. It is by your grace and grace alone, God, that we are able to be come right with you, that we are able to be your children, adopted into your family. God, thank you. Those that are just repenting right now, God, give them the courage to respond, to be baptized today, to take that first step of obedience to what you commanded us to. Those of us that have just had impure motives, Lord, we just ask for your forgiveness, God, your mercy. Our immaturities, God, have gotten the best of us. Forgive us, God. Others of us have disconnected, God. We have no influence. We have no relationship, God. I just, I just pray your favor over this church, God, that every single one of these people, God, you would grant them favor in their relationships, God, where forgiveness needs to be extended, God, give us the courage. Where, where we need to apologize, God, give us the courage. Where, where there's been disconnects and, and separation, God, build bridges through our lives to those that are drowning, Jesus. Forgive us for getting on an island and calling it church, Lord. We want to be in the boat with you, pulling drowning people out of the ocean.